0: Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiavis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about the vaccine steamroller. Dan Wass, host of The Loaded Mic and author of Good Gun, Bad Guy, joins me. Whose Truth, Millie versus Biden? and The Debt ceiling, and NDAA Truth. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned.
1: Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry.
0: Hello again, and welcome to America Can We Talk, and to today's First Five, I'm Debbie Addis. Before I get to the topic of my First Five, I wanted to tell all of our listeners, you listened to the show uh, at this studio for two years, and every day, or almost every day, you hear me thank, I always call Matt the Wonderful, Matt Stoker, my producer, who's in a fabulous job producing this show. Literally, whether I'm doing it from California, doing it on vacation, changing things last minute, sending clips last minute, texting him during the show, can you please come in here and do this or that? He's just been a stellar producer. And I want to give uh, thanks to him and also let you know that he has to, he is moving on to a new job. He's taken a new job in a different studio. So this is the last normal show day you'll hear from him. I will tell you that I considered organizing a protest outside the studio, like getting all my listeners to show up and wave signs and say, don't quit, but, um, and I, or kidnapping him. But both things did not seem appropriate. So I want to make sure to tell you, our listeners, if you are listening in a way that you can make a comment, you should thank Matt Stoker for making the show so great. I'm sure our studio will find another wonderful producer to take over the show. Uh, but for right now, I just want to say a big thanks to Matt Stoker. Okay, Gwen, my real first five today has to do with uh, the vaccine steamroller. And I did a bunch of uh, coverage on Monday related to the vaccine and the astonishing push. To force people to take the vaccine in light of all sorts of information for COVID, and so uh, despite all sorts of information about otherwise effective treatments, uh, the survivability of virtually everyone who gets COVID, uh, blocking early treatments and uh, and forcing people toward the uh, hospitalization route, which pretty much leads to the uh, ventilator route, which leads to death, or waiting for the vaccine. New things have happened even since then. I just want to quickly mention them because I do, as if you listen to my show very often, you know, I've had doctors on the show talking about the idea that this vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine, even according to the CDC's own data, their own data, which doctors are required, they don't always do it, but they're required to report adverse events in response to vaccines, whether it's deaths. Uh, disabilities, injuries, things that the the damage and harm vaccines cause. The VAERS data, the CDC's own data right now, is saying that there are over 15,000 Americans who have died directly as a result of the vaccine, not died of COVID, died from the vaccine. And just as a small reminder, when there was a previous virus out that was brought out for, uh, I'm not sure, it was one of the uh, other problems we had several years ago, they stopped the the vaccine because of 32 deaths, 3-2. We're at 15,000. So, but somehow, despite all of this, and the doctors who've joined me on my show, many have asked, you know, or just just stated, it is very, uh, there's something really sinister going on, something odd, something inappropriate, that there's so much push for the vaccine and so much uh, denigrating of effective treatments that doctors around the country are, are telling you work. And so I want to add a few things to this story, because it is really, really consequential. One is YouTube has announced, YouTube, the social media giant, has announced they're blocking all anti-vaccine content. You kind of have to wonder, does that mean, for example, if the CDC puts out new data on their VAERS website, where they're reporting deaths and injuries in the vaccine, is that forbidden content on YouTube? You, they're saying their new policy they are blocking all anti-vaccine content. And I also want to ask you again to think about the question, why? What is the push of all the diseases and all the viruses that have plagued mankind? What is the reason on this one not only the American government, but governments around the world, and especially leftist thinkers in America, leftist government officials, are so pardon the expression, hell-bent on pushing the vaccine on Americans, especially those who have had have already had COVID. And doctors will say, if you've had COVID, the worst thing you can do for your health is to get the vaccine. And yet, those pushing the vaccine are not even exempting from uh, their push, those who've had COVID. So that's one thing that happened, that, that YouTube has announced that. I also want to mention the most astonishing, and I'm talking about this, is steamrolling of America about this vaccine. Over the weekend, you know, we've been talking about this—it just lunatic-level spending bill the Democrats have come up with. We'll be talking about it later on the end of the show. But this lunatic-level $3.5 trillion um, bill, spending bill, the Democrats are pushing in Washington, which is on top of the $1.5 trillion dollar infrastructure bill, also full of pork and social spending and government expansion and socialist policies. With the $3.5 trillion one that's now really in doubt because the Democrats are discovering pushback, over the weekend, Nancy Pelosi added something to that $3.5 trillion bill, which was a large penalty. This is coming from OSHA, Occupational and Safety Health Administration. Coming from OSHA, a large penalty attached to employers who have over 100 employees and who refuse to put a vaccine mandate in place for their own employees. Remember, Biden said this, that all employees of companies, all companies with 100 or more employees must require the vaccine. And now this is Nancy Pelosi sticking this in to the to the $3.5 trillion spending bill. And fines ranging from $70,000 to $700,000 will be imposed on employers for not, forcing the vaccine on their uh, on their employees. I, I mean, simple steamrolling. I could run through other examples of companies discovering that their employees don't like it, they're willing to quit. Uh, we talked about the Navy SEALs announcing they weren't going to uh, comply with the vaccine mandate. They were not going to be part of the effort to be, the, have the vaccine pushed, even if that meant they couldn't uh, deploy abroad. We also have the United Airlines. Uh, United Airlines has been willing to impose a vaccine mandate. They are near, now facing the termination of or uh, resignation of, up to, of of almost 600 employees. Massachusetts, you had the uh, state troopers had resignations en masse. Teachers have had resignations en masse. Around the country, you're finding people who are saying in a variety of ways, I'm not going to be forced to get the vaccine. I love this spirit because to me, as I've mentioned many times on the show, I have had many, many qualified Actual epidemiologists, actual doctors who treat patients who've had COVID, come on my show. Describe what they found to be effective. Describe what they are, why they're concerned about the vaccine, especially for children. Uh, and, and, and yet, you see the push for the vaccine for children, despite that all the uh, tests, the indications from the uh, studies that have been done. Kids don't need the vaccine because they don't get COVID. And if they do catch COVID, they they recover very quickly. I mean, the kids have basically, according to the doctor on my show two or three weeks ago, uh, Dr. Angelina Farella out of the Houston area said children have basically a 0% chance of dying from COVID. And yet we're going to force this deadly vaccine on them. Simply unbelievable. But I want to close the first five by saying this. I have dozens of friends who've taken the vaccine. I have dozens of friends who have not taken the COVID vaccine. I know people who believe in the COVID vaccine for a variety of reasons and they want to take it and they chose to take it. I know people who don't want to take it because they have read information that causes them to be alarmed. I do not want to be an alarmist myself as to people who have had the vaccine. If you've had the vaccine, I would do some reading because there is information out there what you might do to protect yourself uh, if you've had the vaccine. But the majority of people, to be fair about the vaccine, the majority of people who've received the COVID-19 vaccine, any of the three choices being given out by the three pharmaceutical companies in America, the majority do not die. The majority do not get sick. The majority do not get some long-term, at least they presently are not suffering from any known long-term impact from the vaccine. I don't want to be an alarmist myself. I do think the American people, though, are entitled to truth. They're entitled to have an explanation out of the CDC, the NIH, the FDA about why these vaccines are being pushed so harshly. What happened to healthcare freedom in America? Why aren't these uh, government entities addressing the astonishing uh, death rate flowing uh, from the, out of, out, available to the public to read out of the VARES data? Why aren't these officials talking about the, what they are now have to be aware of, which is the thousands of doctors in America who are advising that many treatments are effective in treating COVID and should be used by doctors in the early phases when patients first are diagnosed with COVID? Why don't you have more information out of the public officials, the public health authorities, the medical associations, the um, the Journal of American Medicine, the American Medical Association, the, the medical associations in every state in this country? Why isn't their voice one of balance, reason, exposure? answering the questions and telling the truth. Why are we involved in this massive, massive steamrolling of the American people, the forcing of the vaccine, essentially arm twisting, threatening your freedom, vaccine passports in New York City, you can't eat out in a restaurant without having a vaccine. Why is all has all of this vaccine mania Captured so many in America, and why don't the people of America have the right to hear answers from, to get answers from, to get explanations from the government? Not just a brushing aside, back of the hand, don't worry, don't listen to those opponents of vaccines, we got it covered. Not that kind of answer, I mean, real answers real answers out of Dr. Fauci, NIH, CDC, FDA, the medical associations at every level in this country. Why don't they have to take and have some accountability for the data that millions of Americans are reading, and why don't they back off on this massive mandate for the vaccine? Mandate vaccine hysteria is unjustified by the facts that we all now know. But I don't want to be alarming to people who've had the vaccine, and I do urge you to remember that the majority of people, the vast majority of people who take the vaccine do not have any permanent, at least presently known, permanent reaction to it. I would urge people to read more from the doctors who are talking about potential long-term implications of the vaccine and what you might do to protect yourself. And that, my very fine friends, is today's First Five. I start this show. I told you at the very beginning of the show, we have a guest joining us. He is uh, not in studio, but he's going to be on Skype in just a moment. Uh, Daniel Wass. He is the host of a, um, he's a Second Amendment advocate, which you got to love that. Um, he is the host of a show called The Loaded Mic. Really great play on words. And he's the author of the book Good Gun, Bad Guy. Good Gun, Bad Guy. We've had him on the show a couple times in the past. Before we bring him on, I want to show, I sent to Matt the Wonderful um, a short, uh, this is from his website. This is what Ted Nugent had to say about Daniel Dan Wass's book. Just a word to the wise who seek to be wiser. Dan Wass truly gets it in his book. Good gun. Bad guy Two. should be required reading for all freedom lovers and Second Amendment warriors. Great stuff. None other than Ted Nugent. So I thought that was a great plug for his book. And please let me welcome. We have joining us right now. Hi there. Hi, Dan.
1: Hey, Debbie. So great to be back on your show. And thanks for showing that uh, that endorsement by Ted Nugent. That was a that was a blast to get that. That was really special.
0: It's pretty darn wonderful too. I mean, for everyone knows what he stands for. In fact, I, we're going to get to your, uh, your podcast in a moment, but I saw that, um, and to your book and your advocacy, um, I saw that uh, Ted Nugent had this thing, I think it was on Facebook or somewhere, where he'd gone hunting and he had the picture of himself with just enormous or maybe you have a picture of somebody else who'd gone hunting this enormous moose. I mean, massive animal. And he was basically talking about how, you know, for those of you upset, uh, please understand, talked about all he was going to be doing, uh, how people would. Um, you know, see this picture and get upset, but the truth was the meat it would provide the, or, as he says, organic meat. He really is an advocate for hunting. In fact, his wife, Ted Nugent's wife, does a show here in the studio, and I, I've met with her. She, uh, I mean, he loves talking about how great it is to live the outdoor lifestyle and hunt for your own food. But that's not why we're here today. So I am, I'm glad you got to uh, get that endorsement from him. So I want to just start with. Uh, I know you you talk about Second Amendment issues of all kinds. One thing I know, and I'm going to talk later in my show about the NDM, the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, but there was a provision in that act that was talking about, that passed the House, but not the Senate yet, but passed the House, that was talking about a red flag provision for gun confiscation that would would apply to people in the U.S. military. And a lot of people were upset about that. So can you describe what that issue is?
1: Yeah, it's, it's Section 529 of H.R. 4350. And what it does is it it, it, it basically talks about um, a way for the federal government to implement gun confiscation orders or red flag laws on military people for a number of different reasons. They they seem to want this leverage over the military. Uh, and, and it's and it's really disturbing because if anybody knows anything about red flag laws, we, you know, what it really is is, is, uh, is confiscation of guns without due process. And there was a man named Gary Willis in Maryland who, who had a, a red flag law enacted on him. And this is where, you know, you, you can be accused of being a, a, a risk to society or whatever. And a judge can sign, uh, sign an order to send cops over to your house, take your guns. Based purely on nothing but an uh, assumption or nothing but an accusation, um, and oftentimes the people who can make these accusations can go anonymous. So it, it's just really another way. And there, I think there are about 18 uh, states that that have red flag laws. To do this on a federal level would be would be, and by the way, Gary Willis in Maryland ended up getting killed that day that that red flag law was enacted on him. He the the cops were banging on his door at five in the morning. He went to the door with a gun because what would you do if somebody banging your knocking your door down at five in the morning and there was some sort of scuffle at the door and Gary Willis ended up dead. Um, This is not okay. This is this is a violation of second, fourth, fifth amendments. This is a terrible way to treat American citizens. When, when the federal government has this, or even the state government has this type of leverage. So federal government, Joe Biden's uh, administration would love to be able to do this now to military, ex-military, retired military, for, for a number of reasons. And what, w- what it would turn into, we're, we're, we're fearful of, is that this would roll over to citizens, uh, national red flag law uh, enacted for Um, for citizens as well. We can't let it happen. Uh, Luckily, groups like Gun Owners of America are fighting against this.
0: I I want to jump in and talk about red flag laws because you're right that uh, you could you could just see this being used if it were to pass the Senate and be signed as as a kind of a, a broad legitimization of the idea from the federal level that once that's okay and, and you know Congress right. says it's okay then states will do it. But I want to hone in on so the purpose of red flag laws, the reason that this whole movement got started for red flag laws, was the idea that if you were concerned about someone who had a gun and you thought they were violent, you thought they're perhaps mentally ill you would, under red flag laws, you'd be able to go to court. And before the person uh, whom you are accusing ever has a chance to defend themselves, you've convinced a judge, based on whatever criteria written into the state law, that the police should seize their guns first. The advocates say, well, it's just an emergency measure. Uh, We just want to make sure we have a way of getting guns out of people's hands who are dangerous. So what's your answer? Why isn't that the right answer, to get guns out of dangerous people's hands?
1: Oh, my gosh, because it, it can be it's it's full of ways that people can can violate due process of, of the person who is being accused. The, if, the, if the person can't go to court and defend themselves, then this is not justice. You know, this is me saying, oh, Debbie, you know, Debbie is a, she's a, she's a risk to society. Go get her. Go get her guns. And you know, it, it's just not OK, because we can't treat American citizens, our fellow, our fellow citizens like this. But Democrats, specifically Democrats um, would love to have this sort of thing, because what they would love to do is be able to just take guns from the people that they want. And, you know, red flag law is probably the most dangerous and the most heinous uh, type of uh, gun, I guess, legislation, you could, you could call it. It's, it's not good because you can't defend yourself. You can't, you can't, you have no due process
0: right that was the term i want to get to due process and every other context before a court can take away your property or your rights you have a constitutional right to due process which includes at a minimum you defend yourself you can say for example in this kind of case the only reason you know he's accusing me of xyz uh, and why he's pursuing this red flag ruling is and you give an explanation you would cast doubt on the credibility of the person who is making the claim? So and, and it is, as you say, it's an abuse of our uh the potential for abuse of the uh of the system, abuse of the uh laws, um, and, and, for, and just a potential for mischief. You wanna, you wanna disarm yes, yeah, disarm somebody else. So uh, Well can I know you that, imagine
1: can you imagine angry angry ex-spouses, you know, and, right. and angry boyfriends, girlfriends type relationships, all sorts of stuff. And you know, in New York State. The red flag law in New York state, in my state, unfortunately, um, I'll be in Texas tomorrow, but I'm in New York today. But in my state, they, they focus it primarily on schools where a certified school personnel can accuse someone of being a, a risk. So in other words, you know, the, a substitute teacher can say, you know, see little Johnny getting in a fight on the playground, little Johnny is a risk to society, the cops can go to Big Johnny's house and take his guns. And this is, <laughs> this is just not okay. And what planet would this make any sense?
0: Right. right exa- exactly. And actually, later in the show, I'm going to be talking about there were some Republicans who voted in the House for the NDA- um, NDAA, which is filled with very bad things, but, we'll, but that's what I want to hit on that one. Okay, so there's also been discussion about whether or not the Trump administration, uh, I wish it was the Trump administration, the Biden administration uh, may be flirting with the idea of participating in a gun registry, an international gun registry. I mean, it just seems like that caption alone would make. But most people think, why would we ever participate in that? But there's apparently concern uh, that the Biden and Kamala Harris administration are thinking about the idea of participating in a global gun registry. And again, I want to I mean uh, this is another argument for people who don't or aren't gun users aren't fully aware of the purpose of the second amendment. You can imagine them saying, "Well, so what?" Okay, so there's just a registry. They're not taking your guns away. They're just saying, "Let me tell you what uh, Dan Wass owns. I can list his weapons. Here's what, you know, Joe Blow owns." So what's wrong with a gun registry uh, nationwide in America or at the UN?
1: Well, just to people who don't who don't understand what the democrats primarily would like to do would think that a gun registry is no big deal. and this is why we talk about universal background checks being a bad idea. but anytime uh, anytime a politician wants a gun registry, it's basically because they want to know who has the guns, where they're located, and what they are. and then and, and this is and, and i'm glad you brought up the red flag issue first because The gun registry and the red flag issue go hand in hand, and I hope people can start to see how that works. Because in order to enact red flag laws without due process, you need to first know where the guns are, which is where universal background checks come in because all the guns would be registered. So they're not, you know, (laughs) these gun grabbers in Congress are not stupid. They understand what they need to put in place so they can basically, essentially eliminate the Second Amendment. Joe Biden wants to get us back into this UN treaty where all guns would be registered. President Trump took us out, by the way. And there's like 110 countries who have already ratified their position with this treaty. We are a free nation. That's the difference. Trump took us out of this thing, uh, which we weren't, we were in it, but we weren't ratified, it wasn't ratified. And now Biden wants to put us back in. They would love China to know exactly who has guns here in America. I'm not sure exactly what's going on or exactly why. But the most important thing we can do is protect our Second Amendment because it always feels. And, you know, just the stuff you're talking about in your monologue, Debbie, it always feels like they are clamping down and they are trying so desperately to take control over society. And the one thing that stops them is the Second Amendment.
0: I love that point, and I will tell you on the Second Amendment. I didn't grow up with guns. I think we've had this conversation before. We didn't have guns in our house, and my dad wasn't a hunter, and so and I didn't really have a, a full appreciation of the purpose of the Second Amendment. You know, even after law school, I, I, I we didn't really talk about that. But the concept that the Second Amendment in the Constitution is there precisely as the number one purpose is to create a balance of power between the people and the government. It is not there to permit, you know, skeet shooting. It's not there to enable hunters or even self-defense of your home or self-defense of your person. All those are good reasons to have it, but it is there as an actual intended political balance to have an armed citizenry, not that you want to have citizenry using their weapons against the government regularly, but it's a notion that we don't have a helpless citizenry A helpless population uh, that has no way to fight back—it's a balance of power thing. And you notice what's occurred in Australia, where all the guns were seized; that they have far fewer rights, far fewer freedoms, and no way to fight back. Same feeling in the UK. So, um, in this gun registry, I'm glad you made that point about how you know once you have an international gun registry, it's not just that American government would know who has the guns, which you know that enables them to seize them when they want to, um, and, and, and or Cast people a uh, suspicion on people because they possess weapons. Um, but the international portion, so yeah, wouldn't China love to know which Americans are armed? Right now they have an unarmed citizenry, and we're their biggest target. Uh, we're China's biggest target, so love those points. Okay, you also, though, um, you, you you have an article. I want to, uh, I, I can't know if you wrote it or it's just lock, linked off of your site, but one thing people lose track of on the subject of the Second Amendment, it is actually equal in deserving and being honored, as is the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, freedom of religion, all those things are intended to be absolute protections of the people. Now, you know, free speech isn't absolute, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, all that kind of stuff, but for the most part, these are inalienable rights. So, But I think that the other thing that helps people become more comfortable is recognizing that guns are actually used To defend yourselves. Guns are the the every time a bad criminal incident occurs, the media piles on and says, Oh, you know, the shooter was so and so and he had this kind of gun and just think if you couldn't have gotten that gun. And rarely is media attention given to all the times that guns save lives or use defensively. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, defensive gun uses are actually, the, the, the number of defensive gun uses is astronomical. It's anywhere from 600,000 to two and a half million defensive gun uses per year. This doesn't necessarily mean good guys killing bad guys. This most often means, and I think the percentage was about 95% of the time, just the mere presence of a gun, just presenting the gun to the bad guy deters the, 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 the act of violence. And forty-six percent of those defensive gun uses were by women. And this is stuff that people just don't talk about. So now, now that I've told you that, let me let me give you a, a little bit of a, a, a little bit of math here. There are approximately 330 million people in America. And there are approximately 1.2 million violent acts per year in America. The math is pretty simple. When you do the math, you have about a 1 in 275 chance of being the victim of a violent crime. Now, the, the 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 gun grabbers don't want to tell you that. But I don't like those odds. You know, 1 in 1 in 275 is not good odds. People will buy a lottery ticket when the when the odds are 1 in 20 million. I don't like the idea of me being a 1 in 275 Chance of being the victim when, especially when we have, we have studies that show Gary Kleck did a study. He's a Florida criminologist did a study uh, that showed us two and a half million defensive gun uses per year. Um, there, there, it's a net positive for self defense when it comes to gun ownership.
0: Okay, did you say? Uh, I don't know about that study. I'd love to see that study, be able to or, uh, what you just mentioned, and be able to talk about it on my show. And I love your point, though, about defensive gun uses doesn't mean that you shoot and harm or kill right. a perpetrator. It just means you show the gun. And they say, yeah. uh, actually, you know, never mind. Yeah, you can keep your purse after all. Uh, you, or, you know, never mind. We'll go to somebody else's house. I mean, you t- to just deter the criminal and therefore reduce crime is a fabulous reason all by yourself to own a gun. And I love your point. I tell me yeah. the women what percent of these incidents of all women?
1: 46%, and this, is a, this was a study by Gary Kleck, K-L-E-C-K, and he's a Florida criminologist. He did this study, and, and it, was, it was conducted through interviews in all sorts of ways, um, two and a half million defensive gun uses per year. And, and the interesting thing about this study is the CDC did a similar study So here's where the gun grabbers go, go, they get twisted. They go cross-eyed when they hear this. The CDC did a similar study and they came up with 2.46 million defensive gun uses, essentially the same number. So they tried debunking the Gary Kleck two and a half million defensive gun use study, but then the, and, and and in the process, the CDC withheld their results for a long time yeah <laughs> uh, and then they had to finally release it. So it, it didn't was come it out
0: the way they planned. Sorry.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. one more thing that people who are, uh, you know, either concerned about guns or maybe they're strongly um, uh, advocates of somehow getting to more gun safety. They say, well, why don't we at least have a waiting period before you buy a gun? That was another piece. They say, well, you know, why don't we have a waiting period? What's wrong with that? You're still going to get a gun, but we have a waiting period in place before you can buy one. What's wrong with that idea?
1: Mm, Yeah, sounds sounds real simple, right? Sounds real nice. And, you know, why shouldn't we? Um, Here's why. Carol Bound was a woman in New Jersey. She was abused. She was in an abusive relationship. This is just one of thousands of examples, and she 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 applied for her concealed carry permit in Jersey, and it was she had to wait 30 days to, to get her get her license. Now she had already made uh, calls to the to the police. She had restraining orders and all sorts of stuff. Well, it was 43 days after. She applied. Uh, she was stabbed to death by the by the by the guy who she was initially fearing. Um, this is why we don't want waiting periods. There's no reason for a waiting period. FBI, you can do a, a, a background check at a gun shop in five minutes. There is no reason for, you know, for a 30 day waiting period in New York. You get your you get your uh, initial gun you know, carry permit and then you have to wait a year as a probation period. Um, So essentially you're put on hold for a year before you can exercise your God-given Second Amendment right. This is is unbelievable that we even have to talk about this stuff because the Second Amendment is very clear to me, says shall not be infringed. I see any waiting period is not only an infringement, but in some cases a death sentence.
0: I love that point. And the other point that I make to people, because I do have dear friends. Okay, I have friends who are Democrats and liberals. I still like them. But they will say, well, you know, all these laws are trying to do is prevent guns from getting in the hands of criminals. So you know, why, why can't we do this, even if a gun owner or a potential gun owner is inconvenienced? Because after all, you're going to prevent getting hands, guns in the hands of criminals. And, but the point of, and I'd love to have you rail on this, but I mean, criminals, that's the whole reason we have a problem. Criminals don't buy guns over the counter at the store and apply for the 30-day waiting period. They don't, they don't, they don't get their guns that way. And so the only ones you're really hurting are the law-abiding ones who want guns to protect themselves. Is that accurate?
1: Oh, you, you nailed it. Because the idea of being a criminal is that you don't obey laws. Yeah. Now, now let's, let's take this scenario. How many killers people who are willing to take a life, how many of these people would be deterred by, uh, oh, I don't know, a magazine capacity restriction or a gun permit or a restricted area, like a gun-free zone? Do, you, do we really honestly think, if we can think about this from a logical perspective, even the, the, the fearful anti-gunners, think about this for a minute. How many of these killers are actually going to obey These silly, ridiculous laws. These laws, Debbie, are designed for us. They're designed for law-abiding conservatives, people who want America to be the way America should be. And if you'll notice, it's always the anti-American politicians who are trying to disarm us. Now they don't go into Chicago or Detroit. Or you know Washington D.C. you know and, and comp, try to confiscate guns. You know it's 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 such a hypocritical idea when they they use they stand on the graves of dead children and and people who die so they can push for more gun restrictions on us the law-abiding citizens because we're the opposition. We okay. real Americans right. are the opposition.
0: I love that. Real Americans. Okay. I'd love to have you tell, I know you have a show called The Loaded Mike. I'd love to have you talk about to our listeners, just tell people how to find it, uh, you know, what the website is and what kinds of issues you talk about in your show.
1: Okay. Well, it's loadedmic.com and mic like microphone, uh, loadedmic.com. And it's it, it, it's kind of a it kind of started as an accident. We, we at, we're on a couple different networks and uh, we have a blast with this show. The The first segment of the show is usually Second Amendment related stuff because we're really passionate about Second Amendment at the loaded mic. And the second, the, the rest of the show, it's an hour long show and it airs every week. Um, the rest of it is topics of the day, stuff like you were talking about in, in your monologue. Um, what's going on in our in our country? What's the stuff that we need to be concerned with? Uh, it's a lot of laughs. My, my co-host John Chayera and my son Danny Wass Jr. produces the show and um, it, it's just a, it's a lot of fun. Second Amendment related primarily, but, but we get into the news of the day and that's LoadedMike.com.
0: And can you watch it live on your website?
1: Uh, no, we don't stream it live right now, but you can go to YouTube and we, we air it pretty much right after, right after it's recorded.
0: Okay, well, allow me to warn you, since I've been permanently banned from YouTube, don't talk about COVID treatments oh. and don't talk about the twenty twenty election. Those are two things they got warned, warned. They finally you, you're not allowed to talk about the actual outcome, the twenty twenty elections, or about COVID treatments, except if you're advocating for vaccines. Stay away from those. I'm happy for you on YouTube, but theloadedmic.com. I urge our listeners to go. Obviously, Dan Wass, very well informed, advocate of Second Amendment and other issues, and I'm so glad you could join me. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Debbie. Anytime. Great to see you. Okay, so plus, he's from upstate New York, so you know where I'm from, so how bad could that be? Okay, I want to two other uh, things today. Uh, one is I want to talk about this uh, thing that happened, uh, in fact, it's still ongoing today, yesterday and today. I call those Who's Truth Millie versus Biden. You likely know, I'm going to assume you know, that before the Senate Armed Services Committee yesterday and some testimony going on today, uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, as well as Joint Chiefs Ch- um, Staff, Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley testified essentially before the Senate Armed Services Committee about what happened in Afghanistan. How could we have such a disastrous outcome? How could it be that we had such a ridiculous, unplanned, irrational withdrawal leading to the deaths of the 13 American um, soldiers who were killed during, the, as a result of the, um, a terrorist suicide bomb um, outside the airport of Kabul? How do we have such a disastrous withdrawal? And there are still reports, of course, of over a 1,000 Americans on the ground, still stuck in Afghanistan, couldn't get out. We had the most disastrous, disorganized, absurd withdrawal, leaving not only American citizens, American green card holders, uh, stranded in Afghanistan, and leaving Afghani uh, citizens who had become helpers in some way to the American military. I mean, disastrous incompetence begin to cover. I'm going to just tell you three quick things about this. Number one, tune into my show next Tuesday. Next Tuesday, I have joining me a gentleman named Sam Faddis, F-A-D-D-I-S. He's a writer, and he's also a former CIA operative. And he and his wife run an online magazine called AND, A-N-D, AND Commentary. And he's got a great piece out talking essentially about the—and we're going to get more of what Millie had to say and Austin had to say uh, in, in the Senate yesterday, but what Fadis' point is, is that you can't really fully analyze what happened in Afghanistan and how ridiculously irresponsible and absurd our withdrawal is until you remind yourself about the relationship between the Biden administration and China he's written a long article and, and i urge you to read it he's going to come join us next tuesday to talk about that because all this is not just a, a, a you know a sterile siloed issue how why didn't we plan our withdrawal better what happened why did we leave so many people there how many why why do we have this horrific uh, death of our people who were on the ground there it's a bigger issue and it ties into the way that america has dealt with our foreign enemies such as china the unfortunate uh, fact that our, our current occupant of the presidency, as well as his adult son, um, have long ties to China and apparent, uh, apparent control by China in some context of them, what, whether people say they are puppets of China, I don't know, but at the very least that aspect, because China is now, you realize of, of all the embassies that did not close in Afghanistan, after the Taliban took over Afghanistan, after we pulled out, the two embassies remaining open, China and Russia. Why are they allowed to stay? Hmm, maybe they're because they're helping. In any case, but I want, so back to yesterday. So we had um, this testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee, and you had Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley again, as well as Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, essentially saying, what the heck happened? Milley testified that he told, he advised the uh, the occupant of the White House, he advised him that they should not entirely withdraw the troops. They should leave at least, to his number, 2,500 members of the military behind. Don't just pull everyone out at once, like we did. So he, he urged, leave 25 members of the military behind to keep peace, keep stability. So that contradicts directly what the occupant of the White House said, Joe Biden, said uh, in an interview with George Stephanopoulos in which, let me just tell you the exact things. Here's what Stephanopoulos asked him, um, talking about life and death, national security. Stephanopoulos asked um, Biden directly, your top military advisors warned against withdrawing on this timeline. They wanted you to keep 2,500 troops. Answer, Joe Biden, no, they didn't. That wasn't true. So this is a very direct conflict. Is Millie and and, you know Austin and, and the people saying they did advise, or is Biden telling the truth? And then you have, of course, the White House spokesperson, Jen Psaki, trying to say, well, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, she kind of said, you know, there are a lot of people giving him advice. You know, they're all not going to be on the same page. He has to listen to everyone. Some opinions conflicted. And after all, Biden is is the, you know, he is our commander in chief and he had to come up with an answer, a decision he made his decision. So she's trying to say, no, Biden didn't really deny that he was told not to pull troops up, but he did deny he was told that he'd been told that. So... I think going forward, you know, it could be like one level question and it does have to be answered by the continuing hearings of the Senate Armed Services Committee. If we actually had a functioning Department of Justice willing to look at things that matter, you might have them looking into what exactly happened in Afghanistan and who is at fault and and how do we avoid this in the future. You also would like to have the investigation be occurring of what is driving the Biden administration policy. What's driving their foreign policy? Is their foreign policy simply being driven by, you know, weighing a bunch of input from a variety of experts and turning out say, well, you know, uh, we think this is the best decision here. Or is it more sinister? Because most people watching the national scene, in fact, now I think it's, it's over, it's a majority of Democrats are in agreement with Republicans that Biden isn't really sentient. He's not really mentally alert. Someone else is pulling the strings in Washington. Someone else is running the country. We don't know who it is, but it's not Joe Biden. Now, he's showing up at work every day and you know putting on a suit and tie and uh, making appearances, but his mental capacity is not sufficient. Believe many Americans, including myself, to be holding down this job. People around him know this. And so you have people trying to cover or protect for him. But the question really is, who's pulling the strings, who's making the decisions, and what is their motivation? What are their motivations? Because you have the usual suspects. You could name uh, former President Obama. You could George Soros. You have Susan Rice in the middle of it all, Valerie Jarrett. You have a bunch of these left-wing Marxists who are behind the scenes and seeming to be very, very um, in control, although behind the scenes. And that group of people has a very different agenda about America's place in the world the the, Amer- the place of America's military than would a patriotic, America loving, you know sovereignty of America loving, you know red blooded American leader. If you are a Marxist and if you're part of the Marxist cabal that's taken over the left in the country. You don't want America to be America the great, America the strong, America the free. You don't want America to be the beacon of liberty. You want to diminish America in the eyes of the world. You want to diminish the importance of America as a force for good, as a force for leadership, as an example of how people can live in freedom. Because if you're a Marxist, you don't want the world thinking that people have the right to live in freedom, that people in America do live in freedom. This hurts your effort, your long-term Marxist effort, to change the world away from a world World with a single superpower of America, standing on our founding ideas, respecting the right of the individual to live in freedom. You don't want that idea sold to the world. And that idea includes a strong military, which has, since the end of World War II, been the premier military in the world capable of standing up against tyrants, standing up for freedom. This is not what you want when you're a Marxist, when you're a Barack Obama leftist. You want the diminishing of America's military, the diminishing of America's role in the world. And so you've got to factor those things into what is driving the decision-making out of the White House. Very, very, many, many tangles to go on this, many, many issues to uncover. But the idea that that I, I dearly hope that there are enough leaders left in Washington on the right side of the aisle who are not going to let this entire Afghanistan debacle is even too gentle a word. It was it was a an utter abandonment of our allies. It was an abandonment of the people who were serving America in Afghanistan, whether they were American citizens or Afghan citizens. It was an abandonment. It was an irresponsible departure. It led to the death, the horrific beheading deaths of I don't even know how many people in Afghanistan, and the idea that we're just going to let this sweep under the rug. Okay, well, bad call there. Should have done something different. That's not good enough. When you stop and think about. Donald Trump got impeached over a phone call, over a phone call to the leader of the Ukraine pointing out clear wrongdoing that everyone knows happened, because it was on national television happened, what Biden did in the Ukraine. Trump gets impeached over that, over a conversation. And you have Biden presiding over the destruction of America's military, the just it, the infliction of the idiocy of critical race theory and social justice warrior mentality and agenda, replacing the role of the military, which is supposed to be to defend America. If we don't have enough Republicans on Capitol Hill standing up and doing something about it and saying something about it, then we deserve the government we get. We conservatives in America. Whatever your political affiliation was, if you love America, if you love freedom, if you want America to be America the strong, America the great, America the free, we need to keep pressure on the people in Washington to get to the bottom of who ordered the Afghanistan withdrawal, who's really behind it, who's running the White House, who was on top of the decision, or who was giving input, saying, you shouldn't be doing this. That's our job. Keep pressure on these people at the very, very least. And a much of this goes back, ties back to the Obama era evisceration of the patriot class out of the military leaders in our country. You'll hear many military people tell this story. Our military had a cleansing, and not an ethnic cleansing, a political cleansing, the removal by the Obama administration over eight years of the leaders in the military who actually believe in America who actually believe in America the strong, the great, the free, and left in place in the military more and more leaders who are committed to the left-wing, Marxist, social justice warrior, critical race theory, let's all sit around and contemplate pronouns, kind of leadership of the military, which is among the reasons we're in the trouble we're in today. we are talking more about this next week with Sam Fattis, but I do want to hit one more topic today in our show, uh, and that is uh, the debt ceiling and NDAA votes. Okay, I was talking, as you know, at the uh, last segment. We were talking with our guest uh, Daniel Wass, who is a, a Second Amendment advocate and a basic, you know, love America advocate. And we were talking about the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. It's the bill that comes up frequently and basically says, you know, we have to fund the military. That's what we, you know, you, the one of the ways you should be spending money in Washington has to do with funding the military, a primary job. Only the American government can do it. Nobody else can do it. It's the job of the American government, the federal government in Washington, to fund the military. That is one of the ways they should be spending money. So first, I want to hit the debt ceiling issue very briefly. So right now, where we sit, we're in September 2021, and the, the uh, America is going to bump up against their debt ceiling, their borrowing limit. That so we, we, we do this every, I don't know if it's every one year or two years. Maybe someone can tell me. One year or two years. But in any case, we butt up against this, and we have to increase the debt ceiling. We have to increase the amount we'll borrow because we are in debt. Hopelessly, ridiculously, overwhelmingly in debt. And America is in debt because we spend too much money. It's not because we don't tax people enough. It's because we spend too much money. And so every year, we have to have this vote. It's, like it's every two years. Whatever it is. The point is, every time this happens, you have people who's uh, you have people in Congress, you know, raising their hands, just standing, jumping up and down, saying, "Let's stop borrowing. We've got to stop spending. We don't. If we would stop spending so much, we wouldn't have to borrow." Well, now we have the unique situation in Washington, where we have the Democrats holding the White House, holding a slim majority in the House, and holding a you know bare majority in the Senate, meaning they have to have the. Uh, the breaking of the, uh, the tie of the Senate, because it's a 50 50 setup right now. So they barely, barely have the Senate. And so you're seeing bravery out of some Republican leaders saying, you know what? This is our time. We're not going to increase the debt limit. Now, every time this happens, every time this discussion comes up, you hear pundits saying, "Now, let's not be irresponsible. Let's not get carried away here." I mean, there are reasons that we have this, uh, you know, this debt limit thing. We can't just be, um, you know, we can't just be cavalierly uh, refusing to re- because look at all the, the spending commitments we've made. We've made spending commitments. We're paying past debts. We have spending decisions made in the past. Uh, spending votes that we're now having to fulfill. And so, you know, we can't, just, we can't just not raise the debt ceiling. It never, ever occurs. And I am not saying, my friends, I am not saying that only the Democrats are at fault at this. Plenty of Republicans have gone along with this charade for years. They continue voting to raise the debt ceiling. At the same time, they go home and talk to their constituents, Democrats and Republicans, and say, you know, I we've got to get this national debt under control. Don't worry, we're going to rein in spending. We're going to find frivolous spending. They all—they say it every time. They say it every time. And then they get to this point where they have to make a vote. And then the answer is, well, you know, We don't want to be the ones that cause a default on our debt. We we don't want to be the ones who knows the ramifications for America's uh, economy, who knows the ramifications for America that could be deeply harmed for a long time. I mean, you can't just not raise the debt ceiling. And so they get around on the last hour, you know, the you know last hour of the day, midnight hour, and say, okay, 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 we'll vote to raise it. Well, this time I don't know what's really going to happen, but I'll tell you what happened was the, uh, the the Republicans in the Senate are saying no. They're actually not permitting the bill to move forward that would allow the debt ceiling increase vote to occur. They won't let the bill move forward, at least as of now. And Mitch McConnell, heaven knows why he's finding bravery on this issue, because he's kind of a hit-or-miss guy, never really sure he's going to do. But in this case, uh, he's he's saying, not doing it. We're not going to move, the Republicans are not going to help move this debt ceiling bill forward. Well, if that really happens, they, they have no legislative avenue to get the bill to the floor of the Senate. That's what's happening in the Senate. And so I don't think that any Republican or any pundit, any speaker, any American citizen, should take lightly the idea that of not raising a debt ceiling, should take lightly the idea that we may actually have a default on our debt. It's not a minor thing. But I ask you to think about this. How else, how else will we ever, ever rein in the spending in Washington until we just we hit a brick wall and the people in the Senate and the House won't go along with it. And we find out the, the big unknown, the big fear, what happens if we don't raise the debt ceiling? What happens if we actually default on view the default on our debt? What happens? Because you know, as they always say, the sun will come up the next day. Uh, Your business will be open. You go to work. You take kids to school. You go to the grocery store I mean life will happen the next day The question is what's the impact on the economy? And if you say well, the 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 unknown is the unknown risk is too great The danger to the economy is too great or if you say that, you know I I know what it is. I I mean, I, I don't have to guess I can tell you as an economist X Y and Z is gonna happen But what is the choice? What, what is the way we ever get out of this? And you do hear people saying, actually economists saying, well, you know what? I think we figure out in America, we're never going to stop spending. We're never going to stop raising the debt limit. We're never going to top, and, and no one's going to default on this. So kind of, they, they just end up saying, so so what? So just keep on doing it keep on spending, keep on raising the debt ceiling, keep on increasing spending, keep on increasing programs and spending. Just just don't even worry about it. Just keep on pretending it's not a real thing. Well, actual homeowners in America, actual households, they do have to face that. I mean, eventually if your household is taking in money uh, from whatever sources, income or whatever you have, uh, and, and but you're spending more than you have, and you consistently do that, you eventually get to bankruptcy. This is what happens to households, this is what happens to businesses. In America, we act like the government is somehow immune from that. But the fact is, I don't know any other way. I don't know any other way to rein in spending than to allow us to get to this point where we say we simply won't raise the debt ceiling, and we're just going to figure out what happens. Now, I'll tell you one last thing to think about this, because now the Democrats are saying the Democrats are saying, well, you know, if the Republicans won't cooperate, which is what they appear to be saying, maybe we, the Democrats, we have to just try to find a way to transfer the power to raise the debt ceiling away from the Senate, away from the House and Senate and put it in the hands of the president with a confirmation by his treasury chief. They're actually floating this idea that they can't get the Congress to cooperate and raise the debt ceiling. They're just going to try. And I'll tell you, number one, I don't think that's constitutional. I haven't really studied the issue. I don't think that's constitutional because I think actually spending bills have to come out, which is the raising a debt ceiling essentially is tied to our spending in our country. I don't think it's constitutional, but the Democrats are that desperate at this point. They're that desperate at this point. I'll tell you something else. The reason why now might be a really good time to challenge it and has to do with the spending bills that Democrats are now pushing. Right now at this 1.5 frivolous 1.5 trillion infrastructure bill, only 30% of it dealing with infrastructure, the rest being porculous spending out of Washington. And then on top of that, the $3.5 trillion uh, you know they're called "Make uh, Win America Back Better" or some crazy name. But the point of it, the 3.5 trillion thing, is it's filled with socialist takeover of America policies. It's filled with Green New Deal. It's a massive transfer of wealth from the people to the government because they have to tax to get the money, and it is an expansion of government power unknown in American history. So if the Republicans are ever going to stand up against the Marxist left, now would be a good time to say no on the spending bill, no on this raising the debt ceiling, let the Democrats figure out what they're willing to cut. I'm in favor of that. I think the Republicans should stand strong and say no. In this segment, I said the other thing I wanted to touch on briefly has to do with the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, and all I really want to say about that is, you know, as happens in Washington so, so often, people have to, you know, if you're elected to Congress, you have to I mean, you could just vote present or you miss the vote, but you end up having to vote on things all the time where you stand for something and you like something, the main part of the bill, you like it, but so many bad things are thrown in the bill that you're having to make a decision. As a Republican, do I vote for the NDAA, the National Defense, I mean, I'm a Republican, I'm in favor of National Defense. But when the left throws all sorts of irrelevant garbage into the bill, irrelevant things, dangerous things, harmful to American things, what do you do as a Republican? Do you say, well, I still better vote for it, because, you know, after all, I'm Republican, I have to vote for the NDAA? Or do you say, you know what? The things in this bill are bad enough. I won't vote to reauthorize the military. I won't vote to fund the military because of the bad things the Democrats put in this bill. And that's exactly what happened in the US House this week. The House did pass the NDAA authorization with numerous Republicans voting for it, because I think Republicans like they just can't vote no on NDAA. But let me tell you some of the things in this bill. Now, it hasn't gone to the Senate, so you know we're still able to maybe stop some of this stuff. But if you didn't know, This bill has expanding the military draft to women. Obviously, no public debate, no notice to the American people, no hearings on how smart is this to start to draft women in America. At the very least, we need an involved American political conversation, not sneaked into an authorization bill. Institutes red flag laws against our troops which we were talking about earlier with our guest, Dan Walsh, using the red flag laws against the military, uh, enables Biden to label some troops. Please listen to this. Enables the president to label some troops as extremists with no limits on that power. Just think who, whoever's really running the country, Biden and whoever's really running it, who they think are extremists. I don't know, like patriotic people who love America, patriotic people who think we ought to have a well-funded military. Those are extremists in the eyes of the left. So this bill included enabling Biden to label troops as extremists with no limits on their power, advances elements of the Green New Deal. The NDAA, the, the Democrats, spend us into oblivion. Marxist mentality is putting Green New Deal junk in the NDAA. Promotes forced veganism on forward deployed troops. All this, you know, replacing real meat with vegan stuff. I mean, just bizarreness. Promotes critical race theory and critical social justice initiatives in the military. So if you vote yes for this to fund the military, you're helping the military push their critical race theory and critical social justice things. Last one I'll say, advances the SOGI, sexual orientation and gender identity initiatives. That's what was in the NDAA. Republicans had to decide. It's a hard thing. I'm kind of with the Republicans who just said, you know what, at some point this bill is so full of garbage. You got to vote no and, and force a clean bill to go through that just funds the actual military and not the socialist, left wing, social experimentation agenda that the left is up to. I am out of time for today. I love doing this show. I love talking with you every single day. I do want to urge you, and go to my Why It Matters to you in a moment. I do want to urge you, if you haven't joined America Can We Talk, today's your day to do it. Tomorrow we have on our special members only show the most extraordinary guy. This is a guy from Peru, the country of Peru. If you didn't know, Peru was recently taken over by the communists. They have Now communism is in control in Peru, and the communist election there was orchestrated by, fill in the blank, who do you think, China, communist China. This guy is here in America talking about the idea, watch what, China, what the Chinese Communist Party did to Peru. And this is not just because they wanted to pick Peru, but he's seeing it, and he's saying it. This is part of the Chinese Communist Party expansionist effort. To eventually make its way to America. That's what his point is. He's coming in the show tomorrow. He's in America doing a tour, talking about what the Chinese communists are doing in Peru and how trying to you know wave a flag of America, wake up, understand the Chinese Communist Party, the China, the communist expansion movement is coming for you. That's the guy tomorrow. Today's your day to join. If you go to AmericaCanWeTalk.org on the homepage under Members drop down. In fact, if you hit members it comes up join and you can join there. I will I do want to say to every single listener I am getting emails, people talking about some challenges getting on to the website during the member shows or during the live shows. We have some slight adjustments are going to be done immediately. We're going to take care of the problem. And for everyone who's joined America Can We Talk, I cannot thank you enough for joining. Thank you so much for joining. We need members, we need people supporting this show where I speak truth about America. So now I'll tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So, you started our today, vaccine steamroller. The vaccination decision is personal, it's private, and those Americans um, those Americans who have chosen to take it and those who have chosen not to take it are free people deserving of respect. But pay attention to what is happening. YouTube is blocking all anti-vaccine content. Even doctors posting about their actual results with actual patients, is that going to get blocked? If it doesn't extol the vaccines as the only solution, it gets blocked. What about CDC's own VAERS data? Does that get blocked? Pelosi rewrites the infrastructure bill to include a tenfold increase in OSHA fines assignable to employers who don't mandate the vaccine. Recall, the CDC data show deaths from the vaccine at over 15,000, and COVID recovery is also at over 99% of people recover from COVID. They do, it is not the uh, death, uh, weapon that the left is trying to say that it is. Why would anyone in their right mind mandate a vaccine in these circumstances? That was our vaccine steamroller. Then we talk about whose truth Milley versus Biden. Joint Chiefs Chair Mark Milley Senate testimony and Biden's past comments appear to be in direct conflict as to DOD recommendations about the Afghan withdrawal. This issue isn't really about who's committing perjury in front of the American people. The issue is about the U.S. chain of military command, starting with the commander in chief, becoming untrustworthy farce of dangerous incompetence, obscured via PR spin games, and no one's ever held accountable. Trump was impeached over a 10-minute phone call, looking into wrongdoing by U.S. officials Milley, oh this is another thing, Milley admitted, he tipped off China in January, said don't worry, we're not going to attack you, even if you were to attack we're not going to do it. This is flat out treason and he admits it in this testimony, like no big deal I guess. And 13 U.S. soldiers are dead from the Millie-Biden-Afghan decisions. Americans are running out of patience. They will not abide the elimination of accountability for government actions. And finally, the debt ceiling and the NDAA truth never has proposed government spending been at levels so transparently off the charts absurd. Never has the spending been so transparently exposed as a radical leftist fundamental transformation tool. Democrats actually propose to transfer approval authority to the president and away from the Congress, an obviously unconstitutional move if there ever was one. Multi trillion dollar bill includes spending for Green New Deal, expanded CRT indoctrination, NDA includes red flag gun grabbing against U.S. veterans. Democrats must be made to own the entirety of this ploy. McConnell seems uniquely determined to stop this. The DC GOP may finally be feeling the base. And that my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time.
1: America Can We Talk? Truth About America.